I'll invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to Galatians chapter 5. The reason that uh, the church has met on Sunday, the first day of the week, from New Testament times onward until uh, now, we see it in the New Testament, is because Sunday is the day that the Lord Jesus rose from the dead. And the church began meeting on that day, uh, which is called in Scripture the Lord's Day. And so this is the reason why we gather on this day and worship. And really then, every Sunday is Resurrection Sunday in one sense. Every Sunday is Easter Sunday. When we gather to worship, we're gathering to worship, not just to do a few things to feel better about ourselves or what have you. We gather to worship our Lord who is risen and is alive today. Uh, we've sung about this. We come every Sunday uh, to worship the Lord in this manner. And so there is a sense in which every Sunday is Resurrection Sunday. Every Sunday is Easter Sunday in one sense. Nevertheless, I do typically on this Easter Sunday preach uh, uh, on a text that is explicitly about the resurrection of Christ. Um, but today, I'm not going to do that. Today, we are going to continue in our series in Galatians chapter 5. And, and part of the reason for that, well, we've, we've always left ourselves uh, some liberty in some freedom uh, when it comes to the so-called church calendar. Sometimes we do break in our series and preach a sermon on the resurrection on a day like this. We often do. Uh, same with Christmas time. We, we break sometimes and preach on the incarnation. Sometimes we will continue through with our series. Um, but as we were thinking about it, and as I was thinking about it and preparing for today and looking at where we are in Galatians, there is, though it's not explicitly about the resurrection of Christ, there is a very direct line, a very direct connection between our text today and the resurrection of Christ. So, of course, as we, as we have read and as we have sung, the Lord Jesus died on the cross and he did so for sinners. He was buried and he was then raised again on the third day from the dead. And in this, he has purchased and secured salvation for sinners. And this is received then by repenting of our sins and believing in the Lord Jesus Christ. We are justified, made righteous before God by faith in Jesus Christ. He has done everything that is needed. We receive it by this instrument of faith, by believing in Christ. And in a number of places in Scripture, including a few places in Galatians, the Bible teaches us that when we believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, there is a spiritual union with Christ that takes place. Now, this is a spiritual reality that we don't see with our physical eyes. We don't feel a physical, suddenly uh, we're physically connected to our Lord. But spiritually, we are. We are united to Christ. And Paul uses this language uh, throughout his letters and a number of his letters, including Galatians. He has spoken in chapter 2 of how... He says in chapter 2, verse 20, well-known words, I have been crucified with Christ. He's saying that upon faith in Christ, he has been, it's as though he was crucified with him, that this old man of sin who persecuted the church and delighted in sin was put to death even with Christ, as Christ was put to death on the cross. He says, so I no longer live, but he says, uh, but Christ who lives in me, 
And he lives his life by faith in the Son of God. Uh, Elsewhere, Paul, in Romans chapter 6, uses this language of union. He says in Romans chapter 6, verse 1, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? So he is laying out this gospel of grace that comes to us by faith, that we are saved by believing in Christ, not by working to try to earn something. And so he deals in Romans 6 with this objection. Well, then, I guess if we're saved by grace and it's not by our working and our effort and God's glorified in this act, then I suppose we should just go on sinning then since our works have nothing to do with our justification. And then, you know, if God gets glory through showing grace, he'll get even more glory as you just continue to just throw yourself into a life of sin. Uh, Maybe this is what Paul is preaching or saying. And of course, his answer, by no means. He says, how can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. So when a sinner is born again, believes in the Lord Jesus Christ, that sinner is united to Christ in his death and in his resurrection. And this means that we have died to our sin. We are freed from its guilt and from its dominion over us. And we are raised so that we might walk in newness of life. So Christians are those who are made new, changed within, redeemed from our slavery to sin and brought into a new life, lived unto God. And it is precisely this new life in Christ that Paul is turning to in Galatians chapter 5. And so let's read, we're going to begin reading in, in verse 13. We'll read through to the end of the chapter. He says, For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. But I say walk by the spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the spirit And the desires of the spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh 
with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. So Paul has laid out throughout the book of Galatians that it is through faith in Christ Jesus that sinners are justified before God. And it is through faith in Christ Jesus that we are made to be free creatures. We are no longer enslaved to sin, no longer under the condemnation of the law where we see God's holy commands and we realize we have failed them and this condemns us. We are no longer under that condemnation of the law through faith in Christ. We are no longer lacking the righteousness that the law demands because we have it as a gift to us through faith in Christ Jesus. We are no longer under the ceremonial requirements of that old covenant, the Sinai covenant. But this freedom that we have, that believers have in Christ Jesus, is something that is often despised by people in this world. People despise God's grace. It is said that if you say this kind of thing to people, that you are, you belong to God by faith in Christ Jesus, apart from your works that you contribute, and that you can have confidence in this. If you say this message to people and you implore people to look away from their own selves, to believe in Christ Jesus and put their hope in Christ Jesus, then all you're going to do is encourage these people to go out and live a life of sin. This freedom, they'll, they'll balk against this. You can't say that sort of thing. It just means license to go on sinning. But this is not at all what the gospel teaches. This is not at all what Paul is saying. And so as we read these words here, Paul is not only dealing with critics of his gospel. Of course, we've been seeing the Judaizers who were throwing the Galatian believers into confusion. We've been looking at that throughout our study of Galatians. But he is now positively instructing believers, you and me, about what the Christian life does indeed look like. That is to say, he clarifies for us over the next several verses throughout chapter 5, what Christian freedom is and what Christian freedom is not. When, when we hear the word freedom, and when we hear the reality that Christians are free and we read about our, for chapter 5, verse 1, for freedom Christ has set us free, we might begin to fill in this idea of freedom with our own concept of what freedom is. I don't know what you think of when you think of that word freedom or freedom in Christ. Um, but if we don't define what we're talking about, uh, then it can just leave it open to misinterpretation or to bringing in uh, maybe our preconceived ideas. Uh, I remember there's a lot of uh, songs out there that celebrate uh, freedom in Christ. And I looked a few up as we were, you've been going through and talking about freedom. And some of them, they say a lot about being free, 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 free. But there's no explanation of what that even means, just free. And if we don't have a good understanding of what the Bible means by this, then we could be off in uh, trouble. So uh, we are indeed free in Christ. But what is the nature of this freedom? So we're going to look at, uh, first of all, what Christian freedom is not. We're going to see that in, in the beginning of, of verse 13. 
Then secondly, what Christian freedom is, second half of 13 and into verse 14. And then we're going to look at a warning about the flesh in verse 15. So we're just looking at verses 13 to 15 this week, and then Lord willing, we'll pick it up in verse 16 next Sunday. So first of all, what Christian freedom is not. So having exhorted the Galatians and us to stand firm in our Christian freedom and to not submit again to a legalistic yoke upon us, we saw that over the last couple of weeks, Paul once again says here, verse 13, for you were called to freedom, brothers. Every aspect of our freedom in Christ is a good thing. The elements of our freedom in Christ that Galatians has really uh, been hammering on so far in the book, Paul has talked about our freedom from the guilt of our sin. We are forgiven through faith in Christ. We are freed from the curse of the law. Our failure to live up to God's standard of righteousness would leave us cursed, but Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, chapter 3. Freedom from the law as a means of trying to secure and establish our own righteousness before God. We're free from that because Christ is our righteousness. And we are, of course, free from the ceremonial laws that we find in the Sinai covenant, the old covenant, which give way at the coming of Christ and the new covenant. And we are free from any who would seek to enslave us to unbiblical commands of God. We are not to submit to that. But if you'll notice, the things that I just mentioned speak of what we are free from. It is all things that we do not need to do or things that we do not need to earn. These are burdens and weights that Christ releases us from. And so the question then is, now what? We're freed from these things, now what? What do we do? We're freed to do what? And this is where the flesh might come in and say, sin. You're free to do whatever. Uh, justified by faith alone, sounds good. Enjoy yourself now. And so Paul continues here. He says, for you were called to freedom, brothers, only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. So we see right away here that Christian freedom is not an unbounded freedom. It is not a freedom that exists with no boundaries whatsoever. I think some people do have this conception that Christian freedom means nobody can tell me anything that I need to be doing. Uh, there is no command or law that's binding toward me because I am free in Christ. That any sort of command at all, any sort of boundary would limit that. And that's simply not what this is. It is not simply a freedom to do anything at all. Certainly it is not a freedom to sin that grace may abound. Paul very categorically says that it's not to be used, Christian freedom, as a cover to gratify and indulge the sinful flesh. It is clearly restricted, at least in some sense, which we'll continue to see as we go. Now, he says that we're not to use our freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. What is this flesh? Well, the flesh 
is the remnant of sin that remains in the believer, believer even after being justified by faith. Even after receiving the Spirit of God, even after being made a new creature, we are not instantly, the moment we believe, in our person suddenly perfect. We still have this thing, this battle with sin that the Scripture calls and Paul likes to call the flesh. This remains an enemy of the believer until we die. Is we commonly speak of our three chief enemies. We have Satan, the world, and the flesh. And Paul is saying here that the freedom we have is not at all an excuse to provide our flesh with a beachhead to establish operations from which we just live according to our sinful fleshly desires. We are not freed so as to sin all the more. That's not Christian freedom at all. So Paul does preach that sinners are justified by grace alone, through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ alone, and Paul would sooner die than deny that or see that be corrupted. But this is not a license to sin. And anyone who would accuse Paul or preachers of this gospel as promoting that do not understand the gospel, nor do they understand Paul. Again, Paul has said back in chapter 2, verse 20, he referred to that a few moments ago, that he, and by implication, all believers alike, are crucified with Christ, united to him in his death. There is a death to sin that has occurred in believers. And there has been a rising to new life and the presence of God's spirit within the new believer. He has said in Galatians that we are those who have been redeemed from the curse of the law so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. And this has certain ramifications, implications for our lives. Uh, to be justified, sola fide, by faith alone, is not merely a, just a get out of hell free card and now you just go and do whatever you want. Justification by faith alone comes to the believer along with the other graces of salvation, like being made a new creature, regenerated, like receiving the Spirit of God, like being called into God's family, adopted as his children. And as well, one of the graces that comes to the believer is the grace of sanctification. And when God places his spirit in that new creature, there is a certain effect that must and will occur. Namely, suddenly now a concern about the things of the Lord, a concern for godliness. It is true that Christians will still sin. And we'll talk more about the battle that then wages between the flesh and the spirit within us in coming weeks as we continue through chapter 5. But very clearly, gospel freedom is not a freedom to simply freely engage in such sin. He says, only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. 
And so I would just in, encourage you, plead with you to see that here. And if you have allowed any of that kind of thinking to enter into your mind, that when we speak of resting in Christ Jesus and trusting him, that this suddenly means that sin is no big deal, that's not actually what we are saying. We are to be on guard against presumption with sin. That if you find yourself not really very concerned at all with sin, that that's not good. Now, the Christian life, I think we can just acknowledge this and admit this, it is sometimes a difficult balance that we are striking, trying to strike. We are simultaneously, as believers in Christ, we are those who are most at rest on the one hand. We are looking away from ourselves to the Lord Jesus Christ, trusting that he is our Savior, that all that we need to stand before God is found in Christ and it's ours as a gift of God's grace upon believing in Christ Jesus. We rest here. We relax here. We sleep at night trusting this. This is where we return to when we are faced with our sins. We rest in what Christ has done. We don't try to fix or add to what Christ has done or perfect what he has done. We rest in what he has done for us. We are... Those who are most at rest, trusting in Christ. And yet at the same time, on the other hand, we are also those who are most at war. Battling with our flesh. Warring against our sin. We are resting in Christ and satisfied in him. And also those who are, in another sense, unsatisfied with our own sinful condition. I think when we are trusting and resting in Christ Jesus for our salvation, with him as our hope, we can be most honest about this, about the fact that we don't yet measure up. Because this is not where we're looking for our hope in our own efforts and goodness. And so we can engage most freely in our battles with the flesh and with our indwelling sin as we are trusting our salvation to the Lord Jesus Christ. So very clearly, Christian freedom here is not a freedom to carry on in sin. But secondly, what Christian freedom is. Again, freedom is not unbounded. It is not without boundaries. It is not freedom from any and all constraint. There are those who want it that way. Nobody and nothing really can tell me what to do. And the moment you try to tell me that something is right or wrong for me, uh, you're, you're, you're you know, uh, putting me under law and there's no place for that. True freedom, Christian freedom, has form to it. I've heard it illustrated a number of ways, but one of them is if you consider a train. Uh, a train has tracks that it needs to follow. And so in one sense, you say, well, that's kind of restrictive. It goes wherever that tr those train tracks will lead it. But on the other hand, the train is free when it's following those tracks to do exactly what it is designed to do. And the moment it comes off of those tracks, one might think it's free now. But that ends in destruction. That ends very badly for it. 
Another illustration, you think of a kite. It flies in the air freely, but only so long as it's tied tightly to that string and someone on the other end knows what they're doing. And the moment you cut that string, it might look like the kite's flying free for a time, but it's actually chaotic and out of control. And then that also will end eventually badly when that kite crashes and burns. The freedom we have in Christ is a freedom from sin and the judgment of our sins, the dominion of our sin. And it is a freedom to a particular end or purpose. And that end, that purpose, is worshiping God and serving Him. And we do this in a number of ways. And the thing that is highlighted here is that we do this through loving and serving one another. So verse 13 again, For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. Notice the attitude through which we serve one another. It is the attitude of love. We serve one another through love. We know there is a begrudging kind of service that can occur in any place where we do it, but we're not really very pleased to be doing it. Uh, Sometimes love still demands that we do it even when we don't really want to. And we understand and know that our world really knows nothing about love, true love. Our love around us is often portrayed as simply some force that, you know, is sort of uncontrollable. You fall into it, you fall out of it, it's a feeling, it comes, it goes, we can't really control it. The heart wants what it wants, what are you going to do? Um, that's, that's the way people talk of it. Uh, we know, of course, that's not the case. <laughs> that uh, love is something that is seen in in concrete action. Love is something that is a commitment. We commit to love our spouse through better and for worse. We know that it is not the same thing as the feeling of love. And yet we also don't want to jump from one ditch to the other and say that affections have nothing to do with love and it's purely just about commitment and a decision to act a certain way and, and, and nothing about affection toward others at all. Uh, This is not, I don't think, helpful or even biblical love either. Uh, For example, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, the Apostle Paul writes of his love for the people in Thessalonica. And this is what he says, verse 7, But we were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. So being affectionately desirous of you, We were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves because you had become very dear to us. There's there's no kind of cold, I just decided and therefore I loved you in action and you do the same. He's affectionately desirous, these words. You're very dear to us. We're sharing not only the gospel, but our very selves with you. You're called in Galatians here through love to serve one another. Again, we see in these words here to serve one another through love something of a paradox to the Christian life. We are of all people most free, but we are also slaves. 
slaves to Christ and to one another, to Christ's people. So that word where it says through love, serve one another, that could be translated as be enslaved to one another. It's the same word Paul used in chapter 4, verse 25, when he said that earthly Jerusalem is in slavery with her children. Here he says that as Christians, we're enslaved to one another. This is what he means by service to one another. The concepts of the Christian as being free and yet also in another sense a slave is found throughout Scripture. And it might seem hard to square at first. Do I think of myself as free or do I think of myself as a slave? These seem like very different things. And it seems, again, like an inconsistency, but it's, it's not. They're not contradictory and it's not inconsistency. inconsistent. Man has been created by God for what purpose, to what end? That we might glorify and worship God. Of course, we know sin has entered into the world and we do not see many who would live to this end. But this is nevertheless the purpose to which man has been created. You think of the the famous first question of the Westminster Catechisms, the larger and shorter catechisms about what is the chief end of man. And the answer, the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. This is our end. This is the end to which man is created. And it is in the gospel of Jesus Christ that sinners are made free from our sin so that we might indeed fulfill this very purpose. This is what it is then to be truly free. To be freed from sin so that we might worship God, the very reason we are created. This means, therefore, that our Christian freedom is indeed bounded. We are bound to that which indeed glorifies God. So we are free, and yet, from another perspective, it is absolutely right to understand that we are slaves to God, slaves of Christ, and to his people, to one another. And we see in this type of freedom our highest and ultimate good. It is not just free to whatever, just sort of anarchy and whatever might come to mind or, or even just to, to worship in whatever old way you so think is maybe the best. There are boundaries laid out for us to worship our God. This is what we're freed from our sin to do and to do it in the way that he tells us to do it in his word. In 1 Corinthians 7, 22, Paul makes an interesting statement there. He says, speaking to the believers, he says, For he who was called, saved, called to Christ, who, for, sorry, for he who was called in the Lord as a bondservant or slave is a freed man of the Lord. So those who are literally physical slaves and owned by others, he says, you're the freed man in the Lord. Likewise, he who was free when called is a bondservant, slave of Christ. Again, both of these concepts, a Christian can view them, viewing themselves as a freed man in the Lord. We're not owned by other people, ultimately. We might belong to someone, have to work for someone, even be someone's literal slave. And yet, ultimately, that is a short-term arrangement when we consider that we are 
free to worship our God and eternally going to be spending our days with him. If a man is a physical slave, Paul says he's to rejoice that he, in Christ he is free. And the free man who is likewise called is to remember that he is indeed not just free to whatever, but he is Christ's slave. Again, we, we mentioned Romans 6 and read a little bit there. It's very much a parallel to what we're looking at in Galatians 5. In verse 22, we see Paul write, But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. Again, we have freedom from sin. To what end? Slaves now to God. Now the emphasis here in Galatians 5, in verse 13, interestingly, he doesn't talk about being slaves to Christ, but rather he says we're to serve one another. He primarily has in view there one another. He's writing to the churches, one another, Christians, to fellow believers, to Christ's people. I think this is one of those one another text that we speak of when we talk about one's uh, commitment to a local church. We commit to one another. We covenant with one another to serve one another. We commit to this very thing, to, through love, serve one another. Now, this might seem a bit odd that he doesn't say we're slaves to Christ, but he jumps into serving one another but the fact is that loving one another is one of the key ways that our love for God is made manifest. One of the ways it is revealed. It's one of the things that distinguishes us is actually love for our fellow Christians. When our Christians are perhaps fellow Christians are hated by the world because they will not go along with lies and the error of the world, but will speak the truth in love, hopefully. And the world despises them for it when they proclaim Christ Jesus and people hate them. For it, we are those who love one another, who love those people, who would visit them in prison if or when the day comes. 1 John 2, 9 says, Whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. As servants then of Christ... We are to lovingly serve Christ's people. Christian freedom, then, is a call to lovingly serve one another. There are so many ways that this, then, could be applied. There are so many ramifications of this. Uh, this call to, to, to lovingly serve one another will certainly um, bring about conviction, I think, of sin, where we... Uh, have failed to do that, where we uh, don't maybe want to do that, perhaps where there might be some um, even issues not yet dealt with with other brothers and sisters that's hampering one's love for another. Again, this confronts our own selfishness, which rears its head in any number of ways. And there are many ways that we can put this into practice, to love one another, to serve one another. Do you think this way? Do you think of this as a, a, an important way in which you can 
express thankfulness to the Lord for his mercy to you, to serve his people, to love one another? Do you consider and think about ways that you could do that? How it is you might be able to exercise the gifts that God has given you to serve one another through love. We are freed to this very end. Paul then goes on and states a reason why we should serve one another through love in verse 14. This is, I think this is fascinating. It says in verse 14, for the whole law is fulfilled in one word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. So through love, serve one another because for the whole law is fulfilled in one word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love aptly summarizes how it is that we are to treat our fellow man. And then the law of God and its various commands does flesh this out a little more. Jesus said in Matthew 22, verse 37, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. These are summaries of the biblical, of the Bible's commands. And when it comes to our Christian duty toward man, it is that we are to love one another. That's the summary. That's the gist of it. Again, this is one of the ways we display our love for God. Now, I find this verse 14 interesting for a number of reasons. One of them is that Paul has been condemning those in Galatia who were desiring to be under the law. We've been seeing this. The Galatians have come in. They're saying, no, no, faith in Christ is not sufficient. It's not enough. You also need to be circumcised. We saw they were, they were promoting keeping the, uh, the food laws of the Old Covenant. These are important things they were saying. And Paul says in chapter 4, verse 21, Tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? And yet here in chapter 5, he says that Christians should serve one another precisely because this loving service is fulfillment of the law. So what in the world is he talking about here? Uh, is Paul putting us back under the law? Is he, he, he said that those who were doing that in Galatia, putting people back under the law, were making Christ of no effect. He said Christ would be of no use to you. Uh, we looked at that in the, in the previous uh, couple of weeks, back in verse 4. You're severed from Christ if you buy what the Galatians are saying and go under the law in the sense that they're teaching. So is this what Paul is doing now when he says love one another? Yeah, of course not. The answer is no. As we have seen, Paul's opponents desired to be under the law in a particular sense. They were making obedience to the law part of the means by which sinners are justified. We are to believe in Jesus. Yes, they would say that. And to complete this process, we need to make sure we keep at least some of these laws. And so 
what Jesus has accomplished, my faith in him, and then my obedience to these things, these will combine together and we will be justified. We stand right before God. And that's what Paul is blowing up and saying, no. He's saying, if you want to go that way and include our obedience and how we are justified before God, then you have to go the whole way and keep the entirety of the of the law with perfection. And that is only going to leave you cursed. He's saying, look away from your own obedience and just look to Christ Jesus and believe. We are justified by faith alone in what Christ has done, uh, not by faith plus our works that we then do. So what the Judaizers were teaching in Galatia was what has often been called legal obedience. It's legalism. It is the kind of obedience where we are working for a wage. If we do this thing, then God's going to owe us something. Christ helps us out. He gets us most of the way there. And then we just have to do a few things and that gets us over into salvation. And Paul's saying no, but that, that's legalism is what it is, ultimately. So when Paul was condemning them for wanting to be under the law, they're wanting to be under the law as a covenant of works, where they're working in order to secure the blessing. But what Paul is talking about here, when he talks about loving our neighbors, loving one another, is very different. If we have legal obedience of the Judaizers, what Paul is talking about here has often been called evangelical or gospel obedience. It's a different sort altogether. The former legal obedience, again, works on that principle, do this and live. We need to do these things in order to be justified before God. And we can fill in that blank with all kinds of things. Do these things, and that's what we need to do in order to be justified before God. That's legal obedience. But evangelical obedience works on an entirely different principle. It works on the understanding that Christ has secured my redemption. And graciously, it has been given to, be, to me by God, received apart from my works, but simply by faith in Christ Jesus. And now as a result, I belong to him. I am freed from sin's curse and dominion over me. And I am made a new creature for the very purpose now of worshiping the Lord. And so I will seek to obey him in gratitude and out of worship to him. Not in order to try to do enough to gain a reward one day, hopefully, but because he has given me this unbelievable inheritance and reward outside of anything I've ever done by faith in Christ. This is not legal obedience. It's an entirely different thing. I hope that's clear. And this is the kind of obedience that the gospel brings about in those who believe. The Judaizers, they would talk a big game about obedience. Well, you must obey in order to be justified. You must keep this law. You must be circumcised. They talk a big game. Well, those guys don't have a room for obedience. They're talking about faith and belief, and that's how you're saved. Well, we say you have to do these things. 
We're the ones who have a high view of God's law. But the obedience that they talk about are certain external ceremonies that frankly, if, we're, if, if this is a matter of eternal life, are not that hard to just eat a certain way. Very attainable. They speak of obedience in external ways. Whereas it is the gospel of Jesus Christ that actually brings about a renewal in the heart of a sinner and brings about a desire to obey the commands of God on the heart level, to love our God and one another. The moral law of God existed prior to Sinai when God entered into covenant with the nation of Israel and gave the Ten Commandments in Exodus chapter 20. Loving God and loving neighbor is a summary of the Ten Commandments. And that was in existence prior to it being spoken on Mount Sinai. The Sinai Covenant was then built upon that foundation. And even now, as the Sinai Covenant has been done away with in Christ, and even as we are justified freely by God's grace through faith alone, God's moral law remains good. And we uphold that. We affirm that. It is good and right to love God with our whole hearts and minds and to love our neighbors as ourselves. That is what God's law declares. We affirm that. That is what we want to aim for and shoot for. We are freed from our sins in Christ Jesus and the penalty for our failure to love God and neighbor. That we might now seek to do that very thing. We are not under this law of God as a means of trying to attain a righteous standing with God. Again, that's legalism, that's legal obedience. But we are under the moral law of God as a guide to our lives as those who've been called out of darkness and into God's light. The moral law of God reveals the righteous and holy character of our God. And that has never changes, as God never changes. And so it is and always has been, always will be right to seek to love God and to love our neighbor. If you, a real great help as we think about the law of God and these, this, how this can be confusing uh, is what our church's confession teaches on it. If you uh, want, read um, chapter 19 in the confession and what it says about the law. You'll find it, I think, to be very, very helpful and edifying um, even as you, you try to sort through these things. So um, I won't uh, put an unbiblical command on you to read that, but I, I certainly would encourage that. I think it would be helpful, but... So reject legal obedience. Embrace rather evangelical obedience. 
See that difference. We are not those condemned by our sin if we are trusting in Christ Jesus. What love and kindness we have from our God. We are freed from the condemnation of our sins. So that we might walk in newness of life, seeking to love our God and to serve one another freely, but not so as to earn anything from God, but because we are graciously and mercifully his already by faith. So again, this is where we get to this idea that we can rest when we, are, when we fail to love our God and neighbor properly and adequately and perfectly. We remember Christ Jesus. We rest that he is sufficient for our forgiveness and for our justification. We confess our sins freely to God. He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins. And we carry on. Finally, and just briefly here, a warning about the flesh. In verse 15, Paul writes, But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. Humility is something that Christians, we, we need to work on continually. Uh, we we were, went through Philippians. doesn't seem that long ago now. Uh, but that's a significant focus in the book in that letter to the Philippian church that Paul wrote, uh, this whole matter of humility. and He's exhorting the church and us to humility there. So we all can recognize that there's need to, to work on humility. But the logic of the gospel does produce humility. Not only a humility before God, but a humility before one another. If all men and women are in our natural condition, dead in our trespasses and sins before God. And if we are brought out of that solely by the grace of God and saving us out of our sins and making us alive in Christ, then what is it that any of us have to boast about? If we are still battling with our flesh, if we are in need of continual grace from God, if we are in need of continual patience from those around us, then surely we can show patience and love to our fellow believers, our brothers and sisters. Surely we can take the time to deal with the log that is in our own eyes before seeking to help our brothers and sisters with the speck in theirs. And surely we can acknowledge that we have many specks that may well need dealing with from our brothers and sisters as they come to us. On the other hand, legalism logically leads to a measure of pride and infighting in churches. After all, there's something to boast about. My obedience, however we conceive of it. This is how the Pharisees ended up arrogant toward and dismissive of sinners, nose in the air. They're not even trying. We have worked hard at this. This is very likely why Paul warns here, as he does in this way, about their biting and devouring and potential consuming of one another. There is assuredly infighting in the church, rooted in this legalistic spirit and boasting in the works of the flesh. Those who are being then suspicious of all those who don't want to get on board with this new preaching of Circumcision and keeping the food laws. 
Such is a sure pathway to devour one another. It is the gospel of Jesus Christ that frees us to love one another patiently. Right in the logic of the gospel, it encourages a humility with one another. And legalism comes along and crushes love and elevates pride. You have various classes, some who've arrived, others who haven't. I've done the thing that's made me arrive here, you haven't. I will look down on you now. There's a logic that leads to that. He is warned, Paul has, that a little leaven leavens the whole batch of dough. This legal teaching in Galatia was having all manner of ill effect in disrupting the peace of those churches. And this is a warning he gives here about biting and devouring one another that tender-hearted Christians would hear and receive. God forbid that I would be part of such a thing. If we're to lovingly serve one another, then allowing the flesh to gain a stronghold through rivalries and strife, envy and dissension is plainly seen for the evil that it is. And so, so far as it depends upon us, we reject that. The end of legalistic teaching is only bad in every conceivable way. And so as those who are trusting in Christ Jesus, we are indeed graciously made a free people in the Lord. But it is also not a freedom to simply indulge in our fleshly passions. But rather, it is a freedom to lovingly serve our God and serve one another. And just as I close, I want to read the final paragraph that is in chapter 21 of our church's confession, also a great chapter on Christian liberty. It says this, They who upon pretense of Christian liberty do practice any sin or cherish any sinful lust as they do thereby pervert the main design of the grace of the gospel to their own destruction, so they wholly destroy the end of Christian liberty, which is that being delivered out of the hands of all our enemies, we might serve the Lord without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all the days of our lives. That is the end to which we are purchased. And we look forward to the day when our risen Lord Jesus will return. And we will experience the resurrection of the dead to glorified bodies. And that flesh that we still wrestle with will be gone forever. And we will experience and live in perfect righteousness. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word to us. And we thank you so much for your grace. We thank you that though we have sinned and fallen short of your glory, and that though the wages of our sin is death, that we deserve not only to physically die, but to then perish under your judgment forever. You have nevertheless in love and in kindness and in freedom 
And because you so desired to do it, you sent your son, who then willingly came and took flesh to himself to die for sinners, to be buried and to rise again from the dead in victory over our sins. Father, there is no other hope than this, and we are thankful that you have indeed accomplished this for us. I pray that you would help us to be those who are at rest in Christ, who look away from ourselves, look away from our works and acts of righteousness when it comes to our standing before you, that we would look solely to Christ Jesus, that when we are troubled in our conscience by our sin and condemned because we fall short yet again, that we would again look to Jesus and trust that you have promised and will keep your promise to save to the uttermost all who look to Christ in faith. And that, Father, those who rest in this, that you would also make us those who joyfully and gladly make war with our sins. That you would cause us to love you and to love one another all the more. Father, I'm thankful for where we see this love for one another on display. For the examples of patience even in our midst with one another and bearing with one another. Help us to excel in that all the more. Lord, we pray that you would help us to be those on guard against falling back into legalistic spirit. We would think that we need to add to what Christ has done in order to make ourselves truly pleasing before you. Father, help us to walk before you uprightly in a way that would please and honor you. And again, we thank you for all that you have done for our souls, graciously and kindly. So we praise you together in the name of Jesus. Amen. This time.